So then, dear friends in Christ, grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So last week we looked at the ascension, and I wandered around searching for the answer to my question, why does Jesus have to ascend? And as I reflected and searched and thought and prayed, I found that it was kind of a passing of the torch of the work of God. When we first meet Jesus, we see him coming to us, born as a child, born of Mary. He then is baptized. He then goes on and teaches and heals, doing the work of God, as we hear so, so many places in Scripture, bringing the kingdom of God to all of these people. But we especially see him do the work of God as he dies and rises for all people. And as he rises from the grave, as he is just the entire focal point of all of God's grace, he then ascends into heaven. We're stuck with the disciples wondering why. Well, it's to pass the torch. And God likes to kick off his earthly ministries in big ways. When we see Jesus begin his earthly ministry, we see it at his baptism where John baptizes Jesus as Jesus rises from the water. The very heavens themselves open up, and we hear the voice of God declaring that this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We hear of God's love and God's joy found in Jesus. And now as we see the people of God continue this work of Christ and begin their earthly ministry, God does big things again. As the disciples are gathered, they are waiting for direction, some sort of guidance. As you recall at the end of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus, before he ascends, says, basically, go back to Jerusalem, hang out for a bit, somebody will come by and tell you what to do, for lack of a better you know, phrase for all of that. But as these disciples are then just sitting there, probably wondering what in the world is going to happen, The sound comes in. It's like a mighty rushing wind. And suddenly these people are filled with the Holy Spirit. They have little flickers of flame coming upon their foreheads. And in this moment, the burning passion of the gospel and of God's grace invigorates them. And they rush out of where they are standing and they begin to preach the gospel. They begin to preach the entire entirety of God's love and his truth and his grace to all of these people that are around them. And these aren't just random theological ramblings or any sort of things like that. It is pure grace that they are sharing with these people. And what's interesting is the exact point in time in which this is all happening. It's during this feast of Pentecost, which is 50 days after the Passover. It's significant for us as Christians because the Passover is also the time where we celebrate Jesus' death and resurrection. So it's 50 days after Easter as well. And here we see the grace of God is just continuing to flow forth. And now in this, in this celebration in Jerusalem, there are all these devout Jews who are there doing what they're supposed to be doing. And what do they hear? But they hear the works of God proclaimed to them in their own native languages. It's a very big key there because you might know another language, but you don't know it as well as the language that you first learned. That is your mother tongue, as they call it. What's also just fascinating 
about these people. And I don't mean the people who are hearing, but the, the disciples who are preaching is that they're nobodies. They're, they're from Galilee. They're, they're backwater Jerusalem hicks. These are not people who are highly educated, but yet by being filled with God's passion and God's grace, they are proclaiming these works and people are hearing and they are believing. We hear of some dissenters, right, calling them a bunch of drunks, which is still one of the funniest responses that I could ever think of to hearing somebody preach another language is to call them drunk. That is so ridiculous in my mind. But later on in this chapter from Acts, what we hear is that through this event, around 3,000 people believe, are saved by this one event. But let's be honest. As we continue to look through the, the rest of our Bibles, as we continue to look in the history of the church, it's not just one event. This is, this is a massive event of change for these disciples, for these apostles, for all the people who then learn and grow. Their, their lives are completely different now as they have learned of God's grace. We have these apostles and disciples who learned of it firsthand, but then we see them blessed by the Holy Spirit to start a movement that then has spread to every corner of the globe where people are constantly healing, hearing, excuse me, that they have been released from their sins, that they are forgiven, that death no longer has any power over them, and that especially they will live. Perfection waits for them. This life-changing grace and the passion of all of these people of God spreads salvation to all the corners of our earth, changing the lives, not just this life, but the life to come for all these people. So, as we look at Pentecost today, what about us? How has Pentecost affected us? In reflecting on our baptisms, we are told that we have been given the Holy Spirit, but I don't see a, a flaming flicker of fire on my forehead. Rather, I had water poured on my head. And then I'm, I'm told that uh, through the Holy Spirit, you'll be able to speak other languages, but the only way that I've been able to speak other languages is through years of really difficult study. So what's happening here? Is this just a, a one-time thing? Do the, the people at Pentecost in this story, are they really the only ones who get to experience this? For the most part, yeah, they are. For the most part, our lives in the spirits, we're probably not going to be speaking other languages like these disciples did. We hear of other times in scriptures where they do, and we have heard, and maybe some of you have even seen it, but probably not most of us. Probably... Not most of us, unless it's an emergency, are we going to have fire on the top of our head. It's just not going to happen. But that doesn't mean that we aren't, as Paul describes us, temples in which the Holy Spirit now dwells. And that's the important part. Is it's not the, the speaking of the languages, it's not the fire that's on their foreheads, it's the Spirit. The Spirit of God has been given to us. And yes, while I may not feel super empowered through my baptism, I do know for certain that in my baptism, God has blessed me with the Holy Spirit. 
I know that as I am led in God's word, as I seek to grow just personally, that the Holy Spirit is at work. I know that as I preach and proclaim the love of God to everyone that I possibly can, I know the Holy Spirit is at work. We are all these new temples in which the Holy Spirit dwells. See, God is, is no longer dwelling in temples. As we looked at Paul a couple of weeks ago, God doesn't dwell in temples made by human hands. He doesn't dwell in statues or things like that. He is now in the hearts of all mankind, of men and women who now go and preach and teach about God's love and God's passion for his creation. This is what Pentecost means for us. We have been blessed by the Holy Spirit and we are blessed to experience great change in our lives and blessed to bring great change to others so that more might know of God's grace. And just like on that first Pentecost, that people would believe and be saved. But I think that many of us do need to refocus. Because where is our fire? Where is our passion? Nancy did a good job with her image today, talking about hockey fans. I'm a hockey fan, and I'll tell you that sometimes my passion for the St. Louis Blues is, burns a little bit hotter than my passion for the gospel. I know that there are plenty of people in this congregation whose passion burns for the Vikings more than it might burn for Christ. We see people out there where their passion for their car, or their family, or their job burns more than it does for the lost people out there. For many of us, it seems that God's grace is just a barely flickering ember in our hearts rather than a roaring fire. So many of us get caught up in a, in a sort of good enough mentality or even get caught up in a, a sort of self-centered mentality. Good enough saying, well, let those other people be on fire for Jesus. I'm good enough. I'm okay over here doing my own thing. Or those other people saying, let those other people be on fire for Jesus and for the gospel, but not me. I, I've got my own stuff to worry about. Let those other people worry about those lost souls. And yeah, there's, it's true that there are days that we're not on fire. And there are days that we don't have the passion that we should be having. And there are days where we actually do need to focus on our own personal spiritual welfare. But so many of us will use it as an excuse to say, nah, just not feeling it today. It could be so many things. It could be just sheer simple laziness. But it also could be fears that we're inadequate, that we're lacking, that we don't know enough. But these are all lies that we are fooled into believing. Because when the time comes, the Holy Spirit is at work. When the time comes for you to be on fire and be passionate for the, the proclamation of the gospel, for the lost souls out there, the Holy Spirit himself is at work in you to give you everything you need. He is there to bless you. Look at these apostles and look at what they did. Half of these guys are fishermen. Half of these guys don't have even what we would consider a high school education. Most of these guys we wouldn't really consider all that bright. But yet through the blessing of the Holy Spirit, look at what they accomplish. 
Look at Peter, for example. Throughout the book of Acts, we see all these beautiful and amazing sermons, and then in the letters he writes some of the most profound things that could possibly be said. Paul's a little bit of a different story. He's a little bit more educated. But one of my favorite stories is looking at Philip. When Philip goes and sees that Ethiopian on the road and he goes and sits with him and talks to him about Isaiah and points out how Isaiah is just talking about Jesus, Philip wasn't prepared for that. He was, quote, led by the Holy Spirit to do this. As we look at all of these people and all of these situations and all of these things, as we reflect then ourselves on our own passion for God's grace, we kind of have to stop and look at ourselves and say, what's really stopping us? What's preventing us from doing this? Because we lack nothing when we have God. He provides for all of our daily needs. He provides for our needs of eternal life but even provides for our spiritual needs through the Holy Spirit. We're, we lack nothing. And so when you start to think and consider, where is my passion, my hope is that your first thought goes to the cross. That on the cross you see your God, your Savior, your Lord Jesus, who has given his life for you, where God really shows just how passionate he is about life as he gives his life for you. And as soon as you go to the cross, I hope you immediately go straight to the empty tomb, where the tomb is, is actually, in a strange way, not empty. It's actually full of victory, because Jesus is not dead in that tomb. He is risen from the grave. And that tomb, while it doesn't contain the body of Christ, flows with grace, because from death has come life through Christ. And as you stop and look and consider it, those two most important elements of the gospel, you can see where God's passion is. That he, in his grace, wants to redeem his entire creation. It shows you just how far God is willing to go for you. That work that Jesus has done that work covers all your inadequacies, all your failures, all your sins. It sets you free. It sets you free to be then filled with passion by the Holy Spirit to proclaim what you have been set free from, to proclaim that to all the people all around you, to get that same fire that was there on the day of Pentecost, but yet burning in your heart. So as you consider all these things, what are you passionate about? As we look out into the world, we can tell a lot of what people are passionate about. People are passionate about politics. People are passionate right now in many large cities because of the protests that are happening. That doesn't come from a place of laziness. And while they may be misguided in some situations, I don't know, I'm by no means an expert, that's the kind of passion that we need to have for the lost souls of God. Where we are taking to the streets and showing people that God not only has saved them, but he continues to be at work. That he has released not just me, not just you, but everyone from their sins. And that 
All of these people who have been released from their sins are now blessed by the Holy Spirit so that they might join with us, that all might be saved. So search your heart. Seek that passion. We all need to ask ourselves seriously if we are passionate for the lost people out there. Do you really care? Do you really care that somebody might go to hell? Do you care? Because as we look at Pentecost, we see a, a beginning of a massive group of people who care, who want the world to know of God's passion, of God's grace. And we have to seriously ask ourselves, do we want to be a part of that? And I hope that from there, you continue to reflect on God's passion for you. And that if you don't care, that your heart and mind are changed so that you see just how important this whole thing is. And then you allow the Holy Spirit to work in you and let his passionate fire burn your heart as you then go out and spread a message of hope and joy and peace to all areas of the earth, especially to those people out there that we can turn on the TV and see are hurting and are in need of God's grace and peace. Amen, brothers and sisters.